นะโมทัสสะบาโตทอาราโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบาโตอาราโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบาโตอาราโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนามังสังขังนามสามิสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับสวัสดีครับส And we have a uh, Naraso. He's been a steward here for a long time, and also uh, Richard, who's been a steward here since the beginning of the winter retreat, since last, last November, actually. We have uh, Ajahn Pavaro in residence, and of course Lumpur Damo, leading the gang. Uh, this week he's uh, taking a little bit of a step back. He's got a break in his schedule, so he's taking some retreat time. So uh, uh, right now I'm I'm kind of missing having him be in charge of everything because now I have to look after more stuff. But it's not that big of a deal in the scheme of things. I was having a very interesting conversation with uh, one of the monks a couple of days ago. We were talking about the nature of perception. So one of the great things about the monasteries, a lot of your, a lot of the conversations that you have, uh, can be about this rather, rather meaningful and pithy. Uh, these topics of dhamma. Perception is interesting because uh, what what the Buddha is talking about when he uses the term san sanya, which gets translated as perception, I think is a little slightly different than. Our ordinary understanding of the word, the English word, perception. And I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of a of a, a story. Um, I'm not really sure it's a Buddhist story, though. I'm not. I don't actually know where it comes from. It might actually be. Um, uh, this story might be a Sufi story, maybe. Anyway, it's a great story because it illustrates something about the way the mind works. So the story is about these three magicians who are really close friends. They, they travel together everywhere. They're never they're never apart from each other. And these three magicians, you know, they kind of go around making their living by traveling from place to place and doing their tricks, doing their magic tricks. And so the the story goes that they're on a journey. They're going through uh, some Going across the countryside, and they pass through an area of forest, and they come across a pile of bones. It's random bones, it's sort of animal bones of some sort, and they don't really know what it is. And so the first magician starts sort of 
poking at it with his, his magic wand and notices something and then he, he's going to impress his friends. And so he, he casts a spell on the bones and they assemble themselves into the skeleton of the creature that had died, which is a tiger. So, of course, the other magicians are very impressed by this fantastic trick that magician number one has just worked by assembling those bones, which were un, sort of unidentifiable before, into a really clear uh, skeleton of a tiger. You know, the big teeth and the big claws and the spine, big rib cage. It's obviously a, a pretty ferocious looking creature, even as just a skeleton. Um, but of course, the other two magicians aren't, aren't, uh, aren't going to just let that rest, right? They, uh, so magician number two, he has to um, do a trick too. So he uses magic wand, casts a spell, and the, he, he puts flesh and skin on the tiger. So now, not only is it just a skeleton, but it's an entire tiger um, standing. Um, and of course, it's, it's that much more impressive because it's got the skin, the stripes, the fur, you know, the tail's kind of really long and thick. And, you know, it's really an impressive looking tiger. Well, of course, magician number three, not to be outdone. He waves his magic wand, casts a spell, does a trick on this, this assembled tiger, and gives it life. And now the tiger springs in the three magicians and eats them. That's the end of the story. Of course, the story is, uh, the moral of the story, um, you can draw your own conclusion, I suppose, but the, the, the point of that story is that it's illustrating three aspects of the operation of the mind. Um, in Buddhism, uh, we call the first one consciousness, eye consciousness or sense consciousness. So this is when, the, when the, um, our sense organs and our ability to recognize, to sort of process at a very pre-verbal level, to organize what's coming in, the data that's coming in, into something recognizable. So it's our ability to sort of know that that's up and this is down and you know this is a bell um, or it's at least it's a shape it's a brown round shape right so before there's any sort of labels or or uh, thoughts about it just the ability to make sense if you will out of what's out there this is the basic function of the sensory organs is to give us a, uh, some reading on what's happening in the outside world that's magician number one, eye consciousness. So magician number two is perception or sanya. And that's where the, the details and the, the nuances of the thing that's being recognized are filled out, sort of fleshed out, if you will. Um, and they, um, the reality of or the, the, the presence of the object that was merely recognized before becomes more comes more into our into our awareness so going from being a round brown shape the thing in my hand becomes a bell we recognize it we have a label for it we know what it's for um, the implications of the bell are sort of there if I you know if I hit it what it's going to sound like because your perception is operating the third magician knows where we really get into trouble the third magician um, basically takes the perception of Bell and makes it into a real thing. It gives it life, if you will. Uh, 
And um, it's the, what comes after that, where the tiger eats the magicians. This is called papancha in Buddhism. It means uh, um, mental elaboration. So it's our, it's our mental elaboration about what's contacted us, what we've recognized and perceived, uh, the mental elaboration that gives us the, uh, the problems with the world. So at the level of mere recognition, eye consciousness, so far so good. At the level of mere perception, so far so good. But at the level of papancha, that's where we get into trouble. The first two aspects of perception, so this, this whole chain of events, the recognition, the, um, the perception of what things are, or the kind of their, their, their conventional uh, meaning in the world, and then the papancha that comes later, the mental objects that flow out of that initial contact. That whole process, in English, we tend to use the word perception to cover all of that. So it's, it's possible to break it down, and the Buddha goes to some trouble to, to distinguish each one of those aspects from each other. And it's important to understand this because it helps in being able to sort out what's going on in the world and also be able to practice properly. So the first two aspects of this process, this mental process, where the, uh, of eye consciousness, when uh, so a, a visible form appears in front of the eye and the eye transmits it into basic information that the brain, our minds are able to recognize, that happens automatically. It happens whether we like it or not. It's, if, there's, if there's a form and there's eye and there's enough light to see it, and our attention happens to be pointed that way, we're going to have that experience of eye consciousness arising. The next step where we recognize what something is, is also kind of contingent on how much attention we're giving to that. So eye consciousness operates automatically, but when we, you see just a, a round brown shape, it may not register. But if you put your attention on the shape, then recognition will operate, perception will operate and give it uh, a name, a label, a history, a meaning, um, an importance, etc. So all the kind of attributes that are associated with that shape pop into existence when perception starts to operate. And again, that happens automatically. We don't control uh, our perception. And you can, you can see this, how this works just by hearing a word spoken. So if I say the word elephant, you can't help it. You recognize what the word is. And you know your mind automatically generates images and, and uh, meanings associated with that, those, um, those verbal symbols that I utter. So elephant, they don't really mean anything by themselves, but our minds imbues them with meaning, and that's the act of perception. So now the... Uh, uh, once we get past that point, those, those automatic processes of the mind, we, we arrive at a point where there's actually some choice in the matter. So we can choose whether or not we elaborate things, whether we make something out of them or not. Um, now, it seems also that, that making, things, um, making things come alive, our mind sort of grabbing a hold of our sensory perceptions and elaborating them, uh, making them into something. It seems, it might also seem that that's an automatic process too. But in fact, we have a lot of say over that process. And this is where practice comes in. So we can't 
we can't practice in any way to make our perceptions not operate. We can't practice in a way to make our eye consciousness uh, not operate. So if there's something ugly that appears in our visual field, that's going to be a painful eye contact. Um, so, uh, oh, I don't know. Let's say, let's think of something that may be unpleasant to look at. Someone, uh, someone parks their car weird in the parking lot. They take up like three parking spaces in the parking lot. And it's disorderly looking. They, they leave one of their windows rolled down and they, their bumper's coming off the car. And it's, it's just, it looks awful, right? So the normal place where you park it's supposed to be orderly and neat and the cars are all parked in their little slots. And one day you pull into the parking lot and there's this, this kind of nasty looking car and the guy's parked it so sloppily that it's taking up three parking spaces. So your eye is going to contact that and you're going to uh, automatically recognize what it is. Uh, the perceptions will happen or the, the recognitions will happen by themselves. And then the perception of what it means uh, the perception that that's a car parked across three parking spaces is very, very kind of ugly, ugly-like, inconsiderate of others, that sort of thing. Your mind will start, will tend to start naturally flowing into papancha. So you'll start thinking, uh, what was that guy thinking? You know, what kind of an idiot would park his car like that? How inconsiderate for others? You know, um, I'm afraid to park my car next to his. He, he might like drive off and, and damage my car. Uh, you know, maybe he's a madman. You know, maybe he's robbing the store. You know, like your mind can just go on and on and on because you saw this thing. And we've all had this experience where we see something and our mind gets going on it. And then it can seem as though we're, our mind is possessed, as though it's uh, being carried along by this stream of thoughts that we don't have any, any real volition over. So, um, and, and it might be true that in that moment, when you, and when you encounter an unpleasant sensation, whether it's a visual sensation uh, of seeing something that's unpleasant to look at, or uh, an audible sensation, you're hearing unpleasant words, um, you see a person that you're, you, you don't like, you know, that can be an unpleasant experience, uh, sensual experience at the most basic level. You see someone that you're, you're preconditioned to dislike you see their image and, you know, unpleasant feelings come up. Um, the, the, the response that the mind has after the, after the raw data gets processed, once we recognize what it is and we start to react to it, that's where the mind is generating mental objects. And the mental objects are something that we tend to cling to. And that clinging causes us suffering. So the suffering is um, potentially optional. And this is, of course, what the Buddha is teaching us about. That's the whole point of the Dhamma, is to bring about the end of suffering, to bring about the end of unsatisfactoriness. So if we, if we study the way the mind works and we get a sense of how we can go, how, how the mind goes from mere contact, recognition of what objects are, and then to processing, sort of post-processing that recognition into papancha, into emotional reactions, mental reactions, internal narratives, um, the projection of beliefs and ideals, uh, re recollection of memories, uh, worry about the future, etc. All those things that are, are secondary to the actual sensual sense, sense contact. That's when the magicians are being eaten by the tiger. So your mind is, is playing its magic tricks, what it always does. 
and uh, we we keep we keep uh, allowing the third magician to work his trick, but we're able to actually stop that magician from going too far. It's possible to do, and so this is what the training is all about. There's a a, a very nice little summary where the Buddha teaches about. Um, he, there's a sutta in which he teaches somewhat extensively, but he gives a summary to it about how how the mind operates when it comes to its tendency to generate papancha. And he puts it like this. Uh, Whatever the mind habitually attends to and occupies itself with, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So our minds are, are kind of leaning, if you will, in a certain direction about any particular topic. So anything that's important to us or that we care about or that seems important, um, we can attend to that object or the, that topic or that theme with a mind imbued with uh, aversion, with uh, greed, with uh, dislike, with hatred, with uh, um, uh, fear, anxiety. And so as we, as we uh, allow our minds to, to uh, uh, consider objects, whatever mental objects are coming up, whether they're people, places, situations, circumstances, things that have happened to us, what's happening in the political world, what's happening in the medical world, what's happening in the economic world. These worlds are all kind of mental worlds. Or what's happening in our immediate sensory world. However we're attending to it, if our, our habits of mind ultimately dictate how it is that our minds tend to generate papancha upon contact with any sensory object. So when we allow our minds to dwell in unwholesome states habitually, then that's the natural inclination of our minds. If we lean that way, then whenever we contact any object, our natural reaction is going to be this inclination that we have. We're kind of pre-biasing ourselves to react to things in a way that's not helpful. So what meditation practice can show us, and this is one of the things that we're looking for when we do meditation. So, for example, in this evening's meditation, we just focused on calming the mind, getting the mind to settle down, so that we could sort of uh, keep track of it. When you're able to, to notice your breath, notice the in-breath, notice the out-breath, then notice that the mind has wandered away, now you're able to kind of keep track of the mind. You, you notice that it's wandered away, you bring it back. And one of the things that you'll notice if you do this often enough is when the mind goes wandering off, it goes wandering off typically in areas of deep habit. So we, we, whatever we're habitually thinking about, whatever we're preoccupied with, the mind doesn't think about necessarily random things. It tends to think about the things that we like to think about, that we think about all the time. So it's, uh, it's kind of you know, got deep grooves, if you will. It's worn grooves in itself of thinking about these things. And so uh, the way the mind wanders is illustrative of the biases that we have built into our minds. So if, we, if our mind wanders towards fear, or it wanders towards anxiety, or it wanders towards boredom, or it wanders towards uh, fantasy or future or past or uh, personal considerations of any sort. Those are just, uh, that's just information. That's part of your education is to see uh, in this kind of neutral way what your mind tends to do. Right? So, so it, you, you can, you can uh, start to take, if you will, the antidotes for those things. So if you notice that there's a lot of fear in the mind, and that the mind tends to wander and think about fearful things. Or you notice there's a lot of 
uh, a future anticipation. The mind's kind of greedy for thinking about, obsessed about, um, you know, the television show that you're going to watch the next episode of, or um, that that trip that's coming up, or um, that person you're going to be with, that lunch you're going to have, or whatever it is that the mind's currently obsessing about. When it wanders off and starts thinking about that, um, when you get to a place where the mind is pretty settled and still, you can intentionally cultivate uh, the antidote to those kinds of inclinations in the mind. And so that's part of what we do with our insight practice. When the mind is calm and still because you've been cultivating uh, calmness, like we did this evening with our meditation practice, you can spend part of your sitting uh, time, the time that you've given yourself to spend in sitting practice, you can spend it um, taking on one or another of the antidotes that the Buddha offers for the unwholesome inclinations that our minds have built up over time. So for example, if uh, you have a, a tendency towards uh, aversion, and a lot of us do, right? So we have uh, aversion is any aspect of, the, of our mental life which um, is disagreeable. Uh, so if we, if we dislike uh, or we're afraid of or anxious about or we're um, disturbed by or we disapprove of or we look down upon anything, anybody, any circumstance, especially if it's not happening like right now, like you're sitting on your cushion. There's no reason for you to think about that, but your mind thinks about it anyway. Right. So that's showing you it's showing you in a very direct way the aversion that your mind <clears throat> has been living with. And so you have an opportunity to take the antidote and the antidote to aversion is loving kindness or metta. Uh, and the, one of the other antidotes is uh, a recollection of wholesomeness. So if you can recollect your own wholesomeness, this is a, um, aiming the mind on purpose in a way that generates papancha, sort of wholesome papancha, if you will, um, you, you start taking up this theme and you start thinking about it. So we're, in this way, we're, we're exploiting the mind's natural tendency to start thinking about something and just kind of keep that, keep that theme rolling. We, we take a wholesome, uh, almost the opposite uh, topic. And rather than let the mind think about something unwholesome and sort of proliferate about it and keep going on and on about it, we, we stop it in its tracks. We, aim it at something else. So say the, the theme of metta, the topic of metta, but it could also be um, compassion, karuna. It could be uh, mudita. Hi, mudita. It could be mudita. Um, and it could be uh, upeka. So those, uh, those are the four Brahma Viharas. And as emotional stances regarding the world, those stances are qualified as wholesome. So whenever something is, say, disturbing, if you can bring the mind to take up the theme of upeka, which is the kind of undisturbedness, where you're simply aware of the thing which is unpleasant, you're aware of the unpleasantness arising, and you're simply bearing with it, you're bearing witness to it, um, and you're not turning away and you're not pushed around by it. So if you, can, if you can cultivate that attitude, then it can be very, very wholesome and very, very helpful for de-biasing the mind towards an attitude of disgust or dislike or um, wanting to get rid of, the desire to, anni to annihilate whatever it is that, that you find unpleasant. If the mind is, is inclining towards, say, fear or anxiety, 
uh, underneath fear and anxiety is always some kind of, uh, you might say, uh, wanting to get rid of, wanting to not be confronted with, not wanting to not have to put up with. So there's a, a definite kind of a negative um, wishing it were different aspect to fear. Uh, and it's, it's an aspect of self-grasping. And the way to get to the bottom of it is to cultivate uh, one of the antidotes to it. So the, the, the cult, something that's very helpful to cultivate, um, if there's anxiety in the mind or fear in the mind, especially if it's a habitual sort of thing, is something that you find not fearsome at all, that you can feel a sense of uh, care and love for. So this is meta cultivation or compassion for. So think about, um, you know, it can be almost anything. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be this formal exercise where you think about, you know, all beings and may they all be happy. Um, that, that can be, if that works for you, it's great. But if it, it can just be, think about puppies or think about babies or think about, um, around here the wildlife you know think about anything that that doesn't doesn't trigger the fear and then cultivate the feeling of wishing well you know wishing that may all the deer may all the newly born fawns um not lose sight of their mothers and have plenty to eat and you know grow up to be big and strong deer you know you can sort of cultivate something like that using this fairly neutral object of a a, a creature or being that you find you know, lovable or not threatening. And once you gener are able to generate that sensation in the heart of uh, the loving, caring about, feeling compassion towards, wishing well for this other being, now you've taken the focus off, off the self, off the me, and you're able to um, redirect your attention towards something which isn't sort of caught up with me and my, my fear. So this, by, by, by building the strength of, of mind to be able to do that, you're um, rehabituating the mind to a different state. And that becomes the new inclination of the mind. So we're using this very, very powerful technique of substitution, substituting the wholesome for the unwholesome. In the case of um, this aspect of perception or uh, perceptual elaboration, we take advantage of the, of the mind's natural tendency towards perceptual elaboration, and we let it elaborate on something really wholesome, and that helps build a whole new set of habits, a new set of biases into the mind. So if you, if you practice with this, and you make a, a regular habit out of it, eventually you start to notice that the inclination towards anxiety, towards fear, towards, towards sort of self-grasping that's involved with that, starts to get a little bit less. Now, it can, take a, it can take a long time. It depends on how long that habit's been there, how deep that habit is. So you can't be in a hurry. But if you just bear with it and just keep making that part of your meditation practice. Uh, so meditation practice isn't meant to be like an escape. You're not trying to escape from your life by going into a, a quiet, deep, jhana-like state of meditation. That can be a nice break. It can be a nice relief. But that's not really the point. The point is, is, is to calm the mind down enough and make it still enough that you can actually see what it does. And then uh, take advantage of the client, the kind of the, the, the willingness of the mind to do what you're asking it to do, because you're training the mind when you're doing this thing of bringing it back over the time. When you bring it back over and over again and it starts to stay on topic, now the mind is kind of what we call malleable. It's, it's, it's pointable. You can point it at something and get it to stay there. 
So when you get the mind to be malleable like that, where it's able, you can put it on a topic and it'll kind of stay with the topic for a while. Then you use it, you take advantage of that and you use it to train the mind by taking it one of these wholesome themes, the Brahma Viharas, recollection of the Buddha, of the Dhamma, of the Sangha, recollection of one's own wholesomeness, recollection of the Davis. There's a lots of different recollections that you can do that are, that are considered to be inherently wholesome and they act as antidotes, the negative biases or the unwholesome biases that our minds have picked up out of our conditioning. So it's not like you're trying to get rid of your negativity. You're simply substituting something wholesome for it. You're displacing it by, by uh, driving it out with uh, a preoccupation with something which is wholesome. So it just gets weaker over time. And that's, that's really all there is to it in a way. That's the magic of, the, of this practice. Um, when you understand how it works and you take, you're taking advantage of the mind's natural tendencies, its natural functions, and you simply choose what to let your mind rest on. So you choose what you're going to pay attention to. You choose the kind of, you choose the kind of sensory uh, uh, items that you're going to allow your mind to entertain. And then you consciously point your proliferation in a wholesome direction. And it starts to, it, it literally starts to change the way that your mind operates. Over time, then you, you end up with a, a mind which is calmer. It's more balanced. It has a more even response to the world. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not an overnight sort of thing. So it took you a long time to kind of get where you are with any unwholesome biases that you might have. So expect it to take a fair bit of time um, to get to a more wholesome state. But what's also uh, true about this practice is that um, a single, you might say like one second of conscious, clear, intentional entertainment or, or attending to a wholesome object on purpose is like 10 times more powerful. It's like worth 10 seconds or maybe, maybe even 10 minutes of sort of mindless wandering around, the mind just sort of following its habits. Um, the reinforcing power of directed attention is extremely powerful. That's how you learn how to do anything new. So when you, if you ever learn how to ride a bike, you, you get to observe this process. You, know, you really put your attention on trying to ride the bike, learning how to balance, and you finally get it. Um, you don't have to train so hard anymore in order to be able to ride the bike. At first, it takes a lot of effort, but that, that effort pays off. So you might have spent 20 years not riding a bike, and it only takes uh, maybe even only a few days to learn how to ride the bike. And once you've learned the trick of it, then that's, now it's a new thing that you can exploit. And you can use uh, forever as part of your bag of tricks. So, so see, see your Buddhist practice in this way, that it's, it's uh, these cultivations, these trainings. Uh, there's a lot of phrases in the, in, the, uh, in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says, uh, thus you should train yourselves. So uh, we, will, we will not train ourselves to entertain wholesome mind objects. We will train ourselves to, to, to uh, uh, direct our minds towards wholesome objects. Thus we shall train ourselves. So if you train yourself in this way, the benefits are only good. They're only beneficial. They're only to your advantage. And they're to the relief of suffering. The mind that's been trained in this way finds it easier to meditate. So meditation happens more spontaneously. It doesn't take as much effort. And you, so you start to enter into this kind of virtuous cycle where your training develops your meditation. Your meditation makes it possible to train, to, to 
to uh, uh, keep the mind on topic, on theme, which makes it easier to meditate and so on. So this virtuous cycle is part of what you're, you're uh, bringing about when you train in this way. So uh, every one of the Buddha's teachings about how the mind operates, uh, almost all of them bring into, this, into the mix this issue of, of uh, attention, intention, uh, the objects that, that come into our minds, how we allow ourselves to pay attention to things. And um, the areas where we don't have choice, like um, recognition, perception, we don't really have any choice there. And contrasting those with the areas that we do have some choice. So we can train our minds to incline in a certain way, incline in a wholesome way. When we do that, eventually we find that our tendency to have negative papancha trains take off and ruin our afternoon gets less and less and less. And so that's, that's where you're actually tasting the fruit of your practice when uh, these more wholesome states start to become more accessible, more spontaneous. You suffer less. And guess what? The people around you suffer less too. So uh, uh, that's just some thoughts to consider for this evening. I wanted to share those ideas with you. And uh, uh, you know, if it was helpful, then please take it into your heart. If it's, uh, it's not helping, then feel free to let it go. And we'll talk more Dhamma again. So we have a few minutes left and we can we can do some questions and answers if you like.